The Eco Right Speaks podcast is your conservative home for weekly climate news, interviews, points of view, climate heroes, jesters, and so much more. We'll share the stories of people leading in their local communities and around the country. Welcome to the Eco Right Speaks podcast. It's brought to you by RepublicEN.org. Hello, and welcome to the Eco Right Speaks, a podcast produced by RepublicEN.org. I'm Chelsea Henderson, your host. And while I don't want to jinx anything, at the time of recording, it feels like the weather is transitioning to fall, which is totally my jam. I'm sure we have a few more heat waves to endure, but I will take open windows and pleasant walks while I can get them. One topic I wanted to touch on before we get to our main segments is that on the date this episode drops, which is Tuesday, the 29th of September, the first presidential debate will air. So if you are listening to this in the morning or the afternoon, that debate will be on this evening. And we were hoping to see a question on climate change. It turns out we aren't the only ones. Back in episode 11, you might remember we talked to Dr. Ed Maybach from the George Mason University Center for Climate Change Communication. If you missed that episode, I encourage you to go back and have a listen. Um, Just this week, Ed and his group released a survey that found that three quarters of voters would like to see a climate change question posed at the debate. Alas, climate change was not on the list of six topics to be discussed, which is a real shame as this is a pivotal issue that is definitely going to impact generations to come. A partisan divide between Republicans and Democrats around climate change persists, but according to the Center for Climate Change Communication, 72% of American voters across the political spectrum support climate action, including majorities of Democrats, Independents, and Republicans. For today's episode, I'm in conversation with two Citizen Climate Lobby members, Jim Tolbert, who manages CCL's Conservative Caucus, and Kelsey Grant, a Citizens Climate Lobby Conservative Fellow. Jim has presided over the growing of the Conservative Caucus, and Kelsey was recently published with the op-ed, Restoring Conservative Leadership on Climate. I will bring you both conversations in a minute, but first, we are going to play my new favorite game, Whose Line Is It Anyway? In case you missed this segment last week, the rules are that I read a quote to the members of the RepublicEN.org team and ask them each to guess who said the quote. It was so popular last week. We're back once again with Whose Line Is It Anyway, where I ask the RepublicEN.org team if they can identify who said a certain quote. So here it is. But a thermometer isn't red or blue, liberal or conservative, and certainly not Democrat or Republican. It doesn't give you a different answer depending on how you vote. So, Bob, who do you think said that? I think that might have been Matt Gates of uh, Florida. Matt Gates of Florida. Let's turn to Price. Who do you think said that? I'm going to stay in the state and say Congressman Francis Rooney. All right. So we have a vote for Matt Gates, a vote for Francis Rooney. When? Who do you think said, but a thermometer isn't red or blue, liberal or conservative, and certainly not Democrat or Republican? It doesn't give you a different answer depending on how you vote. Okay. So when I first heard this, I immediately went to Matt Gates. But then it like the quote kept going and it was like 
so detailed and descriptive. And so now I'm thinking Catherine Hayhoe, which is a totally different person. <laughs> when you are the winner of Whose Line Is It Anyway, that was Dr. Catherine Hayhoe, who our listeners should know we are trying hard to work with her schedule to get her on the podcast, hopefully in November, to talk about climate science. So I tripped up Bob and Price this week. I believe Matt Gates said he didn't come to Congress to argue with a thermometer. So maybe it was that thermometer reference that that got Bob to pick Matt Gates. But thank you all for playing. And I will be looking intently for next week's quote. We're energy optimists and climate realists. Stand with us at republicen.org. Now back to this week's episode. Listeners, welcome back. I'm so happy to be here today with Kelsey Grant, somebody who I just have to admit I cyber-stalked. Thanks for being on the show, Kelsey. <laughs> Great. Thanks so much for having me. So this is something I do. I When I read an op-ed or I see somebody in an um, article, and it's almost always people who are younger, kind of college age, and I think they're eco-right then I try to figure out how I can find them. And sometimes I'm successful. Um, well, listeners, I'm not like a scary stalker. I actually just reached out to Kelsey over Twitter um, <laughs> after reading the op-ed, which I will link in the show notes. And she DM'd me back right away. So thank you for that. Of course. Thank you for reaching out. It made my day. So talk about that op- op-ed that you wrote. And, you know, we don't um, we can't advocate for any candidates. I know you co-wrote that with um, someone who is running for office, but we can talk about it, like kind of what inspired you and um, why climate change is an important issue to you as a voter. Yeah, yeah. Well, to, to clarify as well, even though I, I work for CCL, uh, my op-ed and the things that I say are also not an endorsement for any candidate. But the candidate I'll, I'll speak to, I think, provides a, a good example, I think, for other Republican candidates or uh, Republican elected officials. So uh, a, a few uh, about a month ago, I co-authored an op-ed with Charlie Wynn, who's um, the Republican candidate in District 2 in Colorado. And we wrote an op-ed on the need for restored Republican leadership in the climate space. You know, we we spoke about the, the legacy of uh, the Republican Party in terms of environmentalism. And we also spoke about the, the need to present young GOP voters with a comprehensive climate conservative strategy because they're hungry for something like that. And it's unfortunate we haven't seen that uh, yet. And, the, you know, the op-ed was actually a wonderful story. Uh, Charlie, I met him about a year ago, and um, uh, he, right when I met him was when he started running his campaign, and uh, he very quickly made known that he cared about young people and that he was running for our generation to pave a path for folks like myself. And, you know, I was obviously sold on carbon fee and dividends and, and I, I wanted him to be sold on it too. Um, and it took really like a year, like nine months to a year to really get him to come around to uh, the proposal. And uh, when I reached out to him, I said, Hey, Charlie, let's write this op-ed together. And he said, I love the idea. It, it was really such a meaningful experience because I had a Republican leader uh, going out of his way to make sure folks like myself had a place in the Republican Party and other young conservatives who care about the climate issue. 
Well, I think that everything you just described is a great example. And Jim and I talk about this in the second segment, which um, we recorded first to draw the curtain back a little. But the con the relationships that you develop with either um, people in your community. So he's in your community. He's running for office. Whether he wins or loses, he's still going to be in your community and he's still going to be an important voice. And those relationships take time. We live in a society where I think we're used to instant gratification. And it isn't that, uh, you know, the first time you ask someone, can you support this bill or can you support this concept generally, they may be a little wary at first and you need to, they need to develop that trust with you and see, you know, have time to absorb the facts and absorb the, the science and kind of what is being said. And then you can't, I mean, that's a really wonderful example of that. I, I appreciate that. You know, successful relationship building is slow and it is long, but especially when you're talking about uh, like a conservative outreach in the, in the climate space, you're not only trying to build trust with someone who's maybe new to you, you're also trying to unravel long held political and social and, you know, beliefs um, about climate change. Um, even though, you know, a previous Republican presidents were champions on, on the environment, um, that's that's not what we see today. I think people have gotten used to that. So what I tried to do is I tried to change like the political status quo in the Republican Party. So you're trying to build trust while still trying to do something that is somewhat radical and just it's an up, up, uphill battle. Um, so it takes time. So for anybody engaging in conservative outreach or trying to build relationships with their conservative community members, you know, I just tell you, like, have patience. You'll, you'll get there and just be kind and, and patient and understanding. We like to say um, on Capitol Hill, where I used to work, that it's a marathon, not a sprint. And, mm -hmm. and, and I think that is true in any relationship building. But um, I would say that the sad thing now is that I don't know that we have time for a marathon on climate change, but maybe it's more like a 10K versus the sprint. <laughs> I think that's great. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree with that more. Um, I try to be patient, but I'd be lying if I said I didn't also get frustrated sometimes by how slow things are are moving. Um, but what I will say is that the long relationship building has paid off. And so you also um, serve as a CCL conservative fellow and at Republic EN, we've had some of our spokespeople serve as fellows as well. I don't know if the fellows kind of commingle or you guys ever meet or coordinate, but Jacob Abel from our team, mm -hmm. a fellow and Tyler Gillette. And I think it's such a great opportunity. And I thought it would just be interesting for our listeners to hear a little bit about what the fellowship is about and what sort of things you are doing um, through that fellowship. Great question. So, so first of all, I, I will say, I'm sure Jim already spoke about this in his, his segment, you know, CCL is, uh, overall, I think right now, a left-leaning uh, climate organization, but we take very seriously moving us towards the center and carving out a space for conservatives. And that's kind of my job and other conservative fellows' jobs is to make sure we are carving out that space. And that is is wide and it is welcoming. And so that's the, the, the job. And, and the particular responsibilities of each conservative fellow can really vary. Um, sometimes it can be social media engagement and recruitment for young people. Um my my job, my role in particular, you know, I do a lot of outreach to local Republican groups. I give presentations, networking a lot, bringing them into the organization. So a lot of recruitment. Um, another thing is I, I'm leading a, a state level campaign to pass a carbon fee and dividend resolution. And uh, we've been focusing um, 
especially in the Republican side. So this involves, and I've been recruiting a lot of conservative students to be involved in this for them to engage with the carbon fee and dividends policy and for them to learn about it. And um, so a lot, a lot of my work has, has involved around things like that. But for every conservative fellow, it really varies. And what's great about our program is that you have the, the liberty and freedom to shape your fellowship how you want. But it's, it's all about um, recruiting and activating um, conservatives of all ages. I mean, that sounds like a full-time job in a way. And as I told listeners in the intro, you're a senior at Colorado, uh, University of Colorado, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. So are you studying political science or some sort of related major? Yes, I, uh, I'm a political science and philosophy major. So I'm a pre-law student. Excellent. So is law school what you have on tap next? I hope so that that's the goal or, or another uh, maybe a public policy grad school program i'll be taking a gap year to actually work on uh climate um but then after that i'm hoping to go to law school so yeah when you say you're going to work on climate during your gap year what does that mean what is that do you have kind of a vision yet for what you're going to do in that year well i i i don't have a job right now in the climate <laughs> space but um I, I do have a lot of connections. So I, I also work at an energy consulting firm and, and I'm hoping I can also stick around there, but also to stick around in uh, CCL because that's the, the work that I love doing. Um, but like I said, I, at my energy consulting firm, I'm, I'm really passionate about working with oil and gas and helping them to achieve their, their low carbon uh, goals. Um, and I, I'd like to work on that for a year. That's amazing. Well, I would like you to run for office someday. Any interest in that? Well, <laughs> you know, I I think I am best fitted for working behind the scenes. I I am not so a person. <laughs> every every yes, but I I like getting to work behind the scenes. Um, I don't feel the need to have any credit for it, the work. And I think the people, you know, I, I we do value um, politicians and people in the spotlight, but the people who get things done are the staffers and the people who are behind the scenes who get zero credit for what they're doing, but they're the ones who are moving us forward. And I, I would hope to be that kind of person. Yeah. Um, Jim and I talk about that in his segment to the importance of staff. And I was a staff person, so I have been there and, you know, you work really hard and sometimes mm -hmm. it's... Um, it can be very draining, but very rewarding as well. And so I just, but I know I can tell from how you're speaking about these issues, you come at them with great passion. And I know wherever you end up going, it's, you're going to be successful. And I feel better for our community and our planet, actually, knowing that you are working on climate change. So Kelsey, oh. thank you. <laughs> oh, thank you. That is incredibly kind. Um, of you, I, I will say I also I encounter a lot of individuals who give me a lot of hope on this issue and moving forward. And Charlie, when you know he he is one of them people who are paving a path for young folks like myself. Um, so there's a lot of hope to go around. Welcome back, listeners. I'm super excited to have with me today our dear friend from Republic E at Republic Ian Jim Tolbert. Jim, welcome to the show. Uh, my pleasure. So you are a longtime friend of RepublicEN.org, and the CCL Conservative Caucus, which you run, has a lot of overlap with our community. Yeah, we do. Um, so in, in CCL, we have a, a action team, an internal action team for people that are right of center. And, uh, you know, my message always into the 
conservative caucus in CCL is there's almost no reason for somebody that's in CCL and on the conservative side to not be a member of Republican. Uh, our values overlap so much. So how long now have you been with the conservative caucus? Because I don't feel like you were always there. I think it kind of got started, but you came in and really grew the the sort of subgroup of the greater citizens climate lobby. Yeah, the ac- action team is our, our word for it internally. And, and there's a few uh, founding members, Grant Couch and Rob Beggs, uh, got together and uh, with a few others and, and created this action team. Wow, probably like five or six years ago, I was uh, involved fairly early. Um, and along the lines, we created a, a staff position that Peter Brin held for a while um, before he went uh, off on other other avenues oh, in his Peter. career. Peter yeah. Awesome. And then I took over the, the staff spot when he left. So okay. I've been now on staff for three years. Uh, in addition, we have a, a chair of our conservative caucus. Uh, Bruce Moreland was our chair up until uh, about a week ago, and we just transitioned it over to Ian Harrison. Well, let, for the listeners who aren't familiar with the Citizens Climate Climate Lobby, could you just take a second to explain what the mission is? And then I think it's also important for our listeners to know, you know, why you carved out this action team that's specific to conservative outreach. Yeah. So at Citizens Climate Lobby, we are a firm believer that we need national policy to adjust to adjust our carbon emissions um, national carb- carbon policies in every country to help each country develop a strategy that works for them to reduce their carbon emissions. And uh, we are strong supporters and very focused on a carbon price where all the fee goes back to residents in the country, a carbon fee and dividend, a carbon dividend approach, um, carbon cashback, some people have called it. Um, and we operate in a very decentralized fashion, engaging citizens across the country and inviting them to build a relationship out with their member of Congress and um, influence their member of Congress. That's how our democracy works in the United States, is that our members of Congress are elected by us, but also work for us. And going to the polls in November is just one small piece of participating in a democracy uh, the most productive and really rewarding parts are when you go and speak to your members of Congress directly and influence their uh, views and opinions and educate them on what your views and opinions are. And so we build out those relationships from a position of respect for all of our members of Congress who are elected. Um, and we function in a, in a nonpartisan space. We we focus on, on being a nonpartisan organization um, that does not just support Republicans or just support Democrats, but builds relationships with every member of Congress that's elected in the United States uh, for our U.S. operations. And I think um, that last point is, that, or maybe it wasn't your last point, but the point you most recently made, the nonpartisan aspect is really important because, you know, especially on this issue, I think there's a perception of of division where the, the, that the polling does not support, right? So I had um, let listeners know earlier on in, in the intro that the Center for Climate Change Communications says that 72% of American voters across the political spectrum support climate action. But I think if people had to make a knee-jerk reaction, they would think it was much more of a partisan split than there actually is. So it's true. There, there are a lot of people on both sides of the aisle that support that. 
uh, Yale's climate change communication does provide some some really interesting polling underneath that too, uh, to suggest or to show that when you start looking at who is alarmed about climate change, where their verse their definition of alarmed is is basically fits into the category of are you willing to write your member of Congress or write an op-ed or speak out on climate change, um, that you do start seeing um, the polling suggests the people that are to the left of center are more likely to be alarmed on climate change than people to the right of center. Um, so as you as you look at who is in the more concerned about climate change categories, uh, you do start to see partisan divides there, but that is not saying that there are not a lot of Republicans out there uh, that are concerned and alarmed about climate change and are taking action and using their voice constructively on it, um, which is which is where we come in, and and really speaks to the your your other part of the question of why do we have a conservative caucus action team? Um, as as we look at our own membership, we want to make sure in Citizens Climate Lobby we are uh, we are representing all of the views in the United States and that we are a, a representing conservative views very effectively. And as you look at the, our membership looks a lot like the polling for who is alarmed about climate change in the United States. And we wanna make sure that we continue to have uh, conservative voices going to the Hill, conservative voices speaking out and an organization that is uh, uh, both accepting and seeking conservative voices, but also uh, really engaging conservatives constructively in in advocacy in their community, in their country, and with their members of Congress. And as somebody who used to work on the Hill, I can say that those that outreach makes a difference, whether your volunteers or our volunteers are um, sending in a letter or they're now with social media, maybe they're tweeting at their member or, um, you know, paying that in-person visit, even if you don't get to see the actual member, I know that a lot of folks probably get disappointed if they come to Washington and the member can't make the meeting and they end up seeing staff, but the staff are really important. And I'm not just saying that because I was one. Um, and what the folks are saying back home, and, you know, this goes to something that Bob Inglis talks about where, uh, you know, we had asked him or, or Alex Bosmoski had asked him how many phone calls or letters or whatever form of communication would you need to get in your congressional office for you to take note? Oh, people back home care about this issue. And, you know, we have a at Republic Yen have the belief that if you have 100 hand raisers in every district to say, hey, I care, that that's enough to get your members attention. And yeah, I'd, lo I'd love to pick up on a couple of, of pieces you brought up. Relationships with staff on the Hill, um, I think are really important. I have seen our the staff that we work with really move the member of Congress. Making sure that the staff is getting good information and, and having resources. We often bring resources and points of view and perspective to the staff, as, as well as letting them understand that there are conservatives back in the district supporting concern action on climate change helps the staff members who often have dug into this, had the time to dig into the issue more than a member of Congress that has a, a different background and has a lot more issues on their plate. For sure. Um, the staff can be a great, um, a great advocate for what you want to get done if their bosses aren't exactly in the spot yet to be a, a champion and getting to know them and getting them the information they need can you know it's just part of the process it's extremely extremely helpful and those op-eds and ltes and i mean citizens climate lobby is great at the lte game i have to say the letter 
letters to the editor for those who don't know the acronym you write a letter to the editor and either call on your member for leadership or thank them for leadership and that piece gets put in their daily clips they read it they see it they might see your name maybe in a smaller district uh well i guess districts are all kind of the same but you know your member might know your name maybe it's a friend or a neighbor or know of you and even if they don't you are a constituent they're representing you and so that all of those ways of of getting in you know they all layer on each other and like we've been saying make a huge difference i'd also just echo your point of of having our members of congress hear our concern is so critical in this age and especially for conservatives to be calling into to republican members of office expressing that and writing in to make your your views heard as well as speaking to them directly and and again rec i like how you phrase some of the frustration people can have you know when you write a letter to your member of congress your member of congress really is not going to read it there's going to be a staff person that reads it and tallies it and, and it is important just because you get back a form letter or something that looks like a form letter that where you might not be convinced your member of congress actually picked up the email that you wrote him um, the staff member did pick it up, tallied it, and if enough people wrote up, probably brought it up with a member of Congress to say, hey, we've we've had a lot of people expressing a concern about this issue today. Absolutely. Um, it, it comes up in the staff meeting where you will say, hey, we've had 75 letters in the last couple of weeks on um, asking you to co-sponsor X bill, and that's enough to get attention. So yeah, even if you get the, I'll keep your views in mind letter, which Early on in my career, I wrote a lot of those. I can understand how frustrating they would be to get. So, you know, some of our listeners, and I know you you touched on it um, kind of more from an ab abstract um, perspective, but some of our listeners are really thirsty to hear about specific policy mechanisms, specific bills that, um, you know, that embrace free market solutions. And since Citizens Climate Lobby actually has a bill in both chambers of Congress that they're advocating for, I just thought you could share what that is. And um, we could direct listeners for how to, to find that if they want to do their own research. Yeah, we do have a bill. Um, it is uh, introduced in the House by, by uh, Representative Deutsch. Uh, so Deutsch's bill, H.R. 763, the Energy Innovation and Carbon Dividends Act, is a well thought out and articulated uh, presentation of what a, a carbon fee and dividend or carbon dividend approach can look like uh, that has all the details put on the table there for discussion of what is the fee going to be? What's the increase rate going to be? Um, how are you going to measure success? Are there exemptions, which, you know, there need to be a, a, a careful evaluation of that. For instance, if you're putting a price on, on fossil fuels, there's a carve out an exemption for not emitting uses so that you don't put a carbon fee on the production of plastics because they don't emit CO2. Uh, so it wouldn't really make sense. And uh, how do you do the border adjustment? Who's responsible for implementing what piece? All of that is, is very well thought out. Um, you can find information on it on energyinnovationact.org. It is just a well-thought-out uh, piece of legislation, in my view, uh, that articulates how to put a price on, on carbon emissions, uh, get all of that money back into the households in the United States, um, and set up a border adjustment uh, so, that we don't, so that we preserve American jobs and support the American economy. Is when you were earlier on talking more broadly about the price on carbon, and you know, obviously this approach is one where the revenues would come back to American households. 
And I thought, wow, that's such a better term than carbon tax, which is kind of more broadly what we do at Republic. And I might have to borrow that carbon cashbacks. Yeah, it's it's I, I don't call it my original uh, territory that was thought up. Uh, uh, it was explained to me as a good phrase by some other CCL members who were concerned that carbon dividends, the word dividend, like doesn't resonate with a lot of people that aren't invested in the stock market and thinking I want my dividends. Um, I, I often like use carbon dividends, part, right? Like I yeah. feel like we're when you have to explain what your mechanism does and the language sounds too wonky, it's yes. so easy for the other side to, to kind of shoot something down or make it sound worse than it is. And we have a very hard time making our policies sound cute and approachable. <laughs> I will almost never initially describe our policies of carbon tax. If I'm speaking to somebody that's really into the economics of studying carbon pricing, um, and they say, well, isn't it a carbon tax? I go, yeah, it's a carbon tax. Um, in terms of how economists categorize um, policies, there's a broad group of ways to price carbon uh, that generally referred to as a carbon tax if you go into the economic literature. But that really doesn't represent what it's doing when you take money and give it back to households in the United States. It does, that doesn't adequately represent what most people think of as a tax. Um, so how do we take this conservative caucus action team that you have built and the relationships that those members are building on their own, which is really empowering. Um, and, you know, I think that the word lobby has kind of gotten a bad connotation with a lot of Americans, but actually your right to address your problems with your government to your government is protected by the constitution. So to go and air your grievances is um, one of your constitutional rights. How do we take this, you know, from the grassroots side that we do, the more action side that, that you take, how do we get more Republican lawmakers to want to either be co-sponsors to a specific bill or to kind of move from talking about action or taking like sort of the incremental actions into taking bold leadership? I, th I think there are two components. Um, and they they both have a strong root in the, being local. One is to make sure that the that our members of Congress, our two senators and our representative, understand the impact on the people they serve. So, you know, I sit in North Carolina. My senator has a coastal area and has to address social issues. Also, I I also sit in North Carolina's 11th district, um, formerly Congressman Meadows. And so there's no coastal district there, but there's still a lot of climate change impacts that are affecting the people that live in Western North Carolina. And a lot of the risks, as you look at what happens if we have an extreme drought season, we can have wildfires here. We've had fires in the past. We can also have high rain events that in the mountains have some pretty real geotechnical risks as well as flooding risks. Um, the landslide risks and closing, closing infrastructures uh, have have a real history in this area, but making our members of Congress aware of those local issues and the the economic risks, as well as supply chains for businesses, um, the whole gamut of local issues, as well as then having them hear from local voices in, that they're representing is the other the other side of it. Um, that is so important that uh, our members of Congress do respond to their constituents. Um, if it's not just 10 of their constituents or, you know, even 100 of their constituents, 
bringing up the issue, but it is, if it is something that they are hearing about regularly from their constituents, um, they will respond to it. And, and that puts the weight back on all of us as, as citizens in this republic, in, this, uh, in the United States of America, to do what it takes to move our republic forward. Well, Jim, I can't think of better words to end on. You, I feel like we could talk forever. Thank you. And thanks for all the work you do. It's a great podcast. I've enjoyed keeping up uh, with voices that I know and respect. Right. This has been a week of Thursdays, but we got through it. And by the time our listeners are tuning in on Tuesday, this week will be in the books, as is our recording. Yes, a sad week, last week or this week, whichever our weeks always get mixed up, you know, with the passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and really this past week being the week when she was honored and remembered, you know, publicly at the Supreme Court and at the Capitol, an icon, somebody that's paved the way, won't get into the, you know, the politics or anything, but it just in terms of a a, a legal giant and just a, a pioneer mm-hmm. for women, just yeah. a, the the hits of 2020 just continue to roll along. They really do. And, you know, Price, as I sit here in my house on which I am the sole name on the mortgage, thanks to her paying for that out of the bank account I can have on my own without needing my dad or my brother to co-sign, I am definitely full of gratitude. And I went over to the Capitol. You know, the nice thing about being in the D.C. metro area or the DMV, as we call it here, <laughs> which might mean something to other folks, but District Maryland, Virginia is the real acronym for DMV. I went over with some friends, including um, the daughters of one of my good friends, and it was really moving. We waited in line about an hour and 45 minutes to get through the procession to walk by her casket on the Supreme Court steps and and to see the words above the Supreme Court, equal justice under law, and to know that she worked so hard to help us have that equal justice. Um, it was a really moving and touching moment. And, you know, I don't think she's one that would want people to sit around and mourn, though. There's still work to be done. And we've got a lot of climate work to be done. And this week was a really busy week with the <laughs> National Clean Energy um, virtual conference that was hosted by our dear friends at Citizens for Responsible Energy Solutions. They had a great lineup. I was able to tune in for a couple of them, including a segment with next week's guest, the congressman from Utah, Representative John Curtis. That is going to be awesome. That is going to be really, really awesome, especially with Nick Huey that's going to be uh, joining for that. That's that's going to be uh, – I mean, he's a he. You talk about pioneers. Uh, I'm not going to say he is a true pioneer because there've been others. You know, certainly others on the Republican side that have come before on climate issues. But is is the here and now stands? He is one of them, uh, leading the charge. Fun fact: He said in his segment at National Clean Energy Week that he represents the youngest district in Congress. So the average age of his constituent is of his constituents is 26. Wow. And I know that is young, right? And it makes so much sense. And, you know, Nick, if you missed his episode, I think he was episode three, week three, um, and you want to really geek out before you hear our segment with, um, with Mr. Curtis, you should go check out Nick's. But he says he remembers when Mr. Curtis was mayor of Provo, and he was active then on clean energy. So this is something that 
comes naturally to him and is a passion for him. And we are very lucky. It'll be our first sitting member of Congress. So we've had a few retireds, um, mm-hmm. but this will be the first sitting member, which I'm pretty excited about. And we had a uh, another good event this past week, too. I uh, want to thank uh, the series folks and another past guest. Speaking of past guests, Martha Newell-Kinsman, who hosted a uh, Climate Week chat uh, with Bob Inglis, a conversation with Bob. And so that was uh, that was a big hit. And I know we got some really positive feedback on social media about that. Before we go any further, I do want to shout out a couple of new members who have signed on with us, Emily M. in Florida, Charlie in New York, Michael H. in Nevada, Rose T. in Massachusetts, and Tucker R. in Texas. Chelsea. Well, you know, I do think it's funny how our guests keep staying in our circles, right? And mm-hmm. and so Martha in this event with Bob and then Nick on our next week segment. And um, it's, you know, we're, we're a small but tight-knit family, I guess I should say. Yes, we are. And I want to read this review because somebody in the name of Chris uh, left us a review on Apple Podcasts which we would love to have your review if you just take a couple seconds to give us a a few stars. And then if you want to write something about the podcast, that would be wonderful. We're trying to get to 100 for one host, Chelsea Henderson. But Chris writes, key voice for action. One of the most important voices in solving the climate crisis. We can't solve this by talking past each other. EcoRight aims to build a majority force for action, the key to any long-term fight. And so appreciate Chris uh, from California writing that review. And again, you can go to Apple Podcasts and give us a review right there. Uh, One, two, three, love five stars, but whatever you want to give us and uh, whatever you want to say about the podcast, if there's something that you like, if there's something that you don't like, if there was a past guest that resonated, whatever you would like to say, we will take and we will also appreciate you taking that time to do it. Dude, why are you encouraging negative reviews? If you have a negative, if you have something you want to see improved, just email me so that we have that shiny five-star rating. I need to keep that because, as you mentioned earlier, 2020, the hits keep on coming. And this is a bright spot in my day and my week to, to get to speak to the people who are really at the heart of the eco-right, and then to bring those voices to our listeners and to our community and to hopefully grow that community is really the the fuel that keeps me going right now. Well, wherever you are listening, appreciate you taking that time, downloading, subscribing, listening, Spotify, Apple Podcast, uh, Podbean, Google Pod. I mean, there is just, you name the way, Stitcher, whichever way, or whatever way in terms of platforms you get podcast, you can find us. Just search Eco Right Speaks. It is that easy, and then you hit subscribe, and it will be delivered to whatever device it is uh, that you listen on. But Chelsea, next week it's it can only get bigger and better, and I'm excited about that uh, that conversation with John Curtis. Until then, I'll bid you adieu, and we will do this again next week as we start barreling toward episode 20. Not too far away, we got some special things in the works for that. That's right. I will hear you all, or see you. I won't see anybody. I guess. <laughs> I'll hear you next week. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the Eco Right Speaks podcast brought to you by the team at RepublicEN.org. Make sure to visit RepublicEN.org to learn more and find out how you can be a local eco-right leader.